Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and greetings, my fellow home arresterinos. I know it only feels that way. <laughs> it's discouraging to see how many uh, localities, though, are turning up the heat. I just was looking at a story here of a guy down in California who uh, went paddleboarding out on the Pacific Ocean by himself. And apparently a lifeguard came along and yelled at him, Hey, you can't be out there. The beach is closed. And the guy just kept paddleboarding. So, uh, well, a couple of uh, sheriff's deputies were sent to arrest him. By the way, I was noticing they were not exactly practicing uh, proper social distancing as they placed him in handcuffs and led him away for the crime of not being fearful enough. Now, I understand. I'm oversimplifying this, but uh, this is happening in so many places right now where, you know, birthday parties are being broken up or uh, weddings, for that matter. I mean, it's it's so interesting that the hotline of of, uh, well, you know, if you see a business that remains open or a business that is selling what are considered non-essential items, which, by the way, is an arbitrary determination by someone in authority. Well, that's non-essential. They'll send the police. That's the answer. We need more force. We need more command, less convince. And we're going to spend some time talking about the difference between convincing people versus commanding them. I think you already know which approach our, our rulers or would-be rulers tend to prefer. But here's the, here's the silver lining. And that is people adapt and people learn how to, how to thwart government plans. And this is true even in the most despotic societies. Take some place like North Korea, take the Soviet Union at the height of its power. People still had ways of working around all of those bureaucratic totalitarian edicts. And we have people that are doing that as well. There's an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. Philip Magnus is the author. People adapt thwarting government plans. He says, if you derive no other takeaway from the political response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, let it be this. Human behavior adapts in real time to ever-changing expectations of the future. This means we make decisions based on imperfect bits and pieces of information available to us and then use them to mitigate the uncertainties that lie ahead. Now, you've probably done this many times in the last few months without even thinking about it, or at least not systematically. And he has a good point here. He asks the question, did you wash your hands more frequently today than you did a month ago? Or perhaps carry a bottle of hand sanitizer with you in the event that you must venture out in public. Well, if so, you've adopted your beha- you've adapted your behavior rather based on available information about the virus threat and reasonable expectations to reduce your own risk of contracting the disease. And more likely than not, you were already doing these things before waiting for any president, governor, or regulatory agency official to instruct you to do so. In fact, he says, evidence of risk-mitigating behavioral modification is all around us. Almost every single day, stores run through their entire supply of hand sanitizer, Lysol, and similar disinfectants because people are using these items at much higher rates. Most of us have incorporated social distancing when venturing into public by maintaining spaces between us 
and many are now wearing face masks as part of their routines for venturing out to the store for necessities. Now, he says some of these decisions may prove more effective at risk mitigation than others, and it's not his objective to advise you about what your coping strategy should be. But he says these actions also share a common theme. They are all voluntary behavioral changes that have attained mass adoption in very short order. Behavioral changes also carry complex dimensions that are not as easy to observe. He says that decisions to venture outside or stay put, decisions to stay open or closed, decisions on how many people to allow inside your business at a time, decisions to order something online or to try to obtain it at the store, all of these things occur in real time and they're happening all around us, often based on a personal calculus of needs and risks acted on intuitively at the margin of the decision-making process itself. Now, he also points out in the last several weeks The heavy hand of government has moved into many of these decision-making processes with alarming speed. And its more benign manifestations include public messaging to encourage the same hygienic and social distancing practices that most people were already doing on their own. On the other end, now you're starting to see travel restrictions and highway checkpoints to dissuade travel, anti-gouging laws that prevent the price mechanism from rationing sought-after goods following a surge in demand. Mandatory business closures based on what the state deems, quote, non-essential, with the definition varying from uh, state to state or even municipality to municipality, and even surveillance to catch, fine, and break up unapproved social interactions. Now, Philip Magnus says, you know, in most cases, most of these actions encounter unintended complications that work against their efficacy, even when a policy is adapted for well-intentioned reasons. And the reason for this, he says, is because the state itself is usually a lagging indicator in crisis responses. It tries to project the exact opposite through a cultivated image of leadership and taking charge to defeat the, the crisis. But in truth, most of its decisions are actually reactive, and they often lag several weeks behind even the most basic voluntary behavioral responses. Now, you can see this in responses to a pair of surveys about how people are coping with the pandemic, taken about a month apart between early February and early March 2020. In the February survey, about 40% said, yeah, I'm avoiding large social gatherings. 60%, 66% rather said they'd increased their hand washing. When surveyors asked similar questions March 10th through the 12th, large social gathering avoidance had increased to 68%, hand washing had increased to 88%. And this pattern appears to be well attested to in other areas. Another early March survey reported similar levels of hand washing, in addition to 61% saying they had adopted social distancing. Another late March survey, using slightly different questions, suggests these patterns have rapidly intensified, 91% saying they now avoid social events such as parties, and 77% saying they would be uncomfortable eating out in a restaurant. Now, these attested behavioral changes are in no sense comprehensive, either as a reflection of how people have altered their habits or as a risk aversion strategy when taken alone. But they do offer a clear glimpse of a major shift in public behavior that already had taken place before the federal government issued its national COVID mitigation guidelines for social distancing and various stages of economic shutdown. That took place back on March 16th. 
They also predate most of the stringent lockdown and shelter-in-place orders that city and state governments began to impose during the same period. Second, Philip Magnus points out the timing of these events and behavior is important because they complicate many of the epidemiological models on which government officials are basing their decisions. One widely publicized model released around March 17th projected 2.2 million deaths in the United States as its worst-case scenario. And while the politicians and the press hyped this number into a sense of widespread alarm, few news reports mentioned a substantial caveat to the projection. It was modeling a do-nothing scenario that was already unrealistic for a population with rapidly changing behavioral modifications, as well as governments that had already started to impose lockdowns. So while the 2.2 million person body count grabbed headlines, the more realistic scenarios were accounting for both behavioral and policy modifications, and these were buried in the models accompanying academic study. Therefore, they received little attention until weeks later. These and similar complications hinted a larger problem facing forecasters, both in epidemiology and across the physical and social sciences. Behavioral modification is constant and ongoing which means it's exceedingly difficult to accurately predict. And while some epidemiological models attempt to predict the effects of a narrow range of voluntary and politically imposed behavioral changes, albeit with debatable accuracy, he says it's much more difficult to account for unintended consequences. But if the last few weeks have taught us anything, it's that unintended consequences abound, and not always in ways that are optimal for virus containment. Consider how hundreds of colleges adopted a sudden, sometimes haphazardly executed decision to shut their doors in early March. The policy intended to preempt an outbreak from taking place on campus, where close-quartered dorms posed a potential risk for rapid transmission, but instead, by its hasty enactment, often without much thought given to the implementation, this put hundreds of thousands of college students into finding new residences or having to make last-minute travel arrangements to get home, often to the other side of the country. And that approach successfully mitigated the risk of on-campus infection, but it gave little consideration to the risks of transmission and exposure due to increased travel. As well as, you know, the thought of uh, who's waiting at home. If it's, uh, you know, older parents or even elderly grandparents, maybe sending the kids home wasn't the best idea in the first place. All right, we'll come back to the article again from Philip Magnus. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, phones are open. If you want to join the conversation, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is by Philip W. Magnus, talking about how people adapt thwarting government plans. And I find it very interesting, and I also find it very true, that uh, most of us were already adopting what we felt were sensible guidelines of how to protect ourselves against involuntarily either contracting or spreading the COVID-19 coronavirus. 
before government ever kicked in and started flexing for us, well, you have to do this and you shall do that and thou shalt not do it. You know, before, you know, the authoritarians really leapt to our rescue, we were already doing a pretty fair job for those of us who felt that there was risk at minimizing that risk. Now, Magnus says we saw similar unintended consequences like the ones of sending, you know, hundreds of thousands of college students home and having to make them travel. He says we saw unintended consequences at airports amid the adoption of restrictions on international travel in mid-March. While these measures were intended to slow the transmission of the disease, they also had the unintended effect of corralling thousands of arriving passengers in close quarters for hours on end as they waited to clear customs and, of course, the newly imposed safety screenings, conditions that are ripe for disease transmission. And he says another unintended consequence may be seen in the more recent policy of some states, like Rhode Island and Florida, to impose police checkpoints at their borders to discourage interstate travel and transmission. And he gives a nice uh, consideration here of how the adoption of these policies might backfire. He says, suppose you live in a region that could be constrained by a checkpoint in the near future, but you also have a residence or another residence, rather, or family or some form of home away from home that isn't as restricted. So before the checkpoint policy is imposed, there's a decent chance you'd be willing to ride it out at home by sheltering in place. But with checkpoints looming, some people may start to weigh the risk of being stuck there for a long time as well as being cut off from family and loved ones in other states, or having to deal with increasingly draconian police enforcement in their own hometowns, even though it's well past the point of diminishing returns for disease mitigation. So the unavoidable effect is that some people who were previously sheltering in place in one region now might make the decision to relocate to another before stricter travel regulations are imposed. And they'll do so as a way to mitigate the uncertainty of an indefinite lockdown even if by traveling, they now increase the risk of transmission. In short, the announcement of a policy intended to restrict travel may have the offsetting effect of inducing people to travel just to avoid being trapped in a single place after it goes into effect. So while the state's natural impulse in these situations will just crack down even harder on travel, but that too comes with unintended consequences. Should we accept, for example, the prospect of law enforcement checkpoints that now have to differentiate between permissible essential trips to the grocery store and forbidden travel across state lines from a hotbed region to a comparatively isolated one? Considering that such enforcement will also increase social interactions between anyone who passes a checkpoint and the police, it may even become a vehicle for disease transmission itself. The more draconian the lockdown, the more opportunities that disease will spread as a result of enforcement actions to impose the lockdown. I get the impression that, uh, you know, the authoritarians don't care as long as they can flex. And at the root of these and the other unintended consequences is the recurring problem of information uncertainty. It happens at the policy level where politicians imagine that they can design and seamlessly implement a quick fix to an exceedingly complex system that also defies our capacity to predict and forecast. It can happen in our daily lives, too, where the personal decisions we make to mitigate the risk of disease incorporate individualized knowledge of our own circumstances that no collective entity or state actor can ever come close to obtaining. So when information scarce or costly or difficult to obtain, the risk of unintended consequences goes up dramatically. 
And the point here is we should let that serve as a caution against aggressive, sweeping policy decisions because the chances are high they're not adequately taking into account individual behavioral changes that are already well underway, let alone additional responses provoked by the policies themselves. Phil Magnus says given the the epistemic constraints in which we are operating, such policies could prove costly, ineffectual, and at attaining results they seek, or even worse, they could backfire. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Thank you for your patience. Welcome to the show. You bet, Brian. This isn't a killer virus for most, which is why the police aren't afraid of getting it. They're giving it to people. They're not, they're not social distancing from their usual day of 9 to 5 plunder. A cop in Texas confirmed COVID-19, and he's been breathing on people through their window, through their door in their car, for weeks now, he's finally off the street. He's not sick unto death, uh, unfortunately. So he's, uh, he's at home collecting a check, and he'll be back at the terrorism any day now. But it's not about stopping it. They want this problem. They w- and they're, they're testing the resolve of the people to think for themselves and govern themselves accordingly. And they're not disappointed by the what the sheep are doing. Well... I know that there are some cops out there, though, who are actually very, uh, very reluctant and, and are being directed by above not to pull people over for, you know, for anything but the most dire circumstances. Um, I know some are being told, do not arrest anyone unless it is absolutely necessary. So I, I guess, you know, the, the emphasis varies from agency to agency. Sure. Who, you know, that, that's that's fine. It's interesting how uh, you can be discriminatory here and not there and. Big business is open, small business is closed. Department will leave you alone. That police department wants their, their usual quota. And it's fascinating, South Dakota and Iowa aren't doing any of this police East Berlin nonsense. And life goes on, I, you know, just like Mexico. Yeah, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm giving too much praise to Utah's state government, but I've actually been kind of pleasantly surprised that uh, Governor Herbert has taken more of a uh, a hands-off approach. I mean, they've put forth the guidelines and whatnot, but they really haven't, you know, flexed and, well, now we're going to lock it down and you people better obey or whatnot. You know, you contrast that with, uh, you know, California, for instance. I mean, they're salivating at the prospect of, we want you to inform on each other. We want you to bring the state to bear to punish those who would question what the great Oz has dictated. Sure. So I'm grateful well, for small favors. Yeah. Well, California's been in the 1984 pipeline a little longer than we have, but we're just a, a year or two behind. We can get there quick. Well, here's here's hoping that we never complete that journey, but I'll tell you, it ain't looking good, at least at least from my vantage point. Just remember, the, the most comfortable boxcars show up first, so if you want a good one, Get, get, there, get there early. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. Appreciate the call. 801-331-8113. Wow. The stuff we have to consider. I, I do like the article that I shared with you, though, from uh, Phil Magnus about, you know, the unintended consequences. And, it's, and look, people can c- commit unintended consequences, too. I'm just grateful that there are places out there like, for instance, Sweden and Taiwan that uh, didn't do an immediate lockdown either of the people or of their economies as the first resort. It seems like the biggest mass experiment are the ones who reflexively put everything on lockdown, shut it all down. 
Caller, welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, my my friend, he owns a big business down here in Utah County, and uh, my son works with him, and they just uh, closed down the jail industry. He hires 40 people from Utah County Jail, and they just uh, put them back in the other part of the jail and shut down the industry uh, as of today, I guess. Wow. So Does that portend yeah. a, a growing, you know, clamping down? Does it look like the state's going to tighten some of those restrictions? Well, according to my word on the street from my son, just at noon, that they, a couple of the deputies has come down with it. Oh, dear. Okay. Listen, I appreciate your call. we got to break away here because we're up against the bottom of the hour break. We will check news headlines. We will be back. This is Loving Liberty. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. I'm sorry, I just wanted to get that number out there twice in case you uh, were having trouble getting it into your phone. But uh, feel free to call in. So I, I saw a very interesting article by Jacob Hornberger from the Future for Freedom Foundation. Wanted to share this with you because I think he makes a pretty interesting case here of uh, how we fear freedom in our health care. And he does this by illustrating what if we let government slip in and, and dominate or control another aspect of our lives. He says, imagine that the United States had a system of public churching for 230 years, a system in which the federal government owned and operated public churches alongside private churches. Now, this state-run system of public churches would be run by government employees, including ministers, and it would be financed through taxation. Prayers and prayer books would be devised by the Federal Department of Religion. A compulsory church attendance law would mandate that all children in the nation be taken to either a private or public church for services every Sunday. Now, he says, also imagine an ongoing long-term crisis in religion. Political conflicts over who would be employed as ministers, what prayers and prayer books would be used and what people should wear to church and what time church services should be held. The services are highly regimented with school children bored or even worse, detesting God. When people ask what can be done to resolve the religion crisis, the most popular response is, well, tax and spend more money to fix the system, including paying higher salaries to church personnel in order to attract better people into the public church system. And he says, one day a libertarian shows up at a public church meeting and says, I've got an idea on how to resolve the public church crisis. Let's just separate church and state. No more governmental involvement in religion at any level of government, federal, state, or local. No more public church buildings. No more church taxes. No more compulsory attendance laws. A total separation of church and state. Now he says, you can imagine the people's reaction. Are you crazy? Why, if people weren't forced to send their kids to church, why, the entire nation would end up being immoral. Before long, everyone would be hating God, maybe even worshiping Satan. And where would the poor go to church? Only the rich would have churches to attend. You'll never convince people to go along with such a radical, extreme idea. You might as well give it up 
Just help us come up with ways to reform our public church system. We've definitely got some problems here, but hey, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, you may think, well, that's a ridiculous thing. I mean, after all, come on, the First Amendment talks about the free exercise of religion. I'm sure somewhere in there, the Supreme Court justices have their x-ray vision specs where they can see where it says clearly separation of church and state in the Constitution, even though those words never actually appear in there. All right, fair enough. Their emanation and penumbra spotting glasses may be able to spot it. But does this not illustrate how people react to the idea of, well, we can't let something run without the government doing it? It would never get done. And Jacob's point here is, isn't that the response many people today would have to the libertarian idea of separating health care and the state? I mean, the thought of getting rid of the FDA or the Center for Disease Control or federal planning and management and regulation of health care, medical licensure and Medicare and Medicaid. Well, that scares people to death. Now, at the same time, he acknowledges, sure, our health care system is an absolute mess. And it has been for decades, long before the coronavirus crisis. Skyrocketing health care costs that have placed countless Americans into deep debt, even bankruptcy. Doctors hating what they do in life and constrained with respect to how much money they can make. Fraud in Medicare and criminal prosecution of doctors. Mandatory charity disguised as compassion. A shortage of health care providers and reform after reform after reform with people now calling for a full government takeover of medicine, just like in Cuba and North Korea. By the way, I am seeing calls for that full takeover. Do away with private insurance entirely. Jacob Hornberger says the coronavirus crisis has only highlighted the massive dysfunctional nature of America's government provided, government planned and government controlled health care system. Shortages of essential supplies and equipment such as masks, ventilators, and testing kits. Governmental restrictions and prohibitions imposed on health care providers. And, of course, ever-increasing tyranny and oppression to keep people safe. And what do the proponents of this system say is a solution to all this planned chaos? Well, they say that we need even more government planning and control of health care. They're even saying that we should treat the crisis like we're waging war. Now, surely, if you're familiar with the life-nurturing success of the military in faraway places like Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia, okay, then you get the point. What he says this really demonstrates is a fear of freedom. He says, what happens when a libertarian or a libertarian educational foundation like the Future of Freedom Foundation says what we've been saying for 30 some years? How about if we just separate health care and the state? No more governmental involvement in health care at all. A total free market in health care. And, you know, the likely answer would be, oh, my gosh, Jacob, you are so radical. Oh, sure, we have some problems with health care, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we got government out of health care, there would be people dying in the streets. Health care is just too important to be left to the free market. And he asks the question, why are people so scared of freedom and free markets when it comes to health care, but not religion? Well, one reason, one big reason is that they were born and raised under a system of religious liberty. 
They see how it works. If they had been born and raised under a public churching system, they would have the same reaction to the idea of religious liberty that they do to health care liberty. So since they've been born and raised under a system of government-provided, government-managed, government-planned, and government-controlled health care, the idea of health care freedom is frightening to them. But Jacob Hornberger says, nonetheless, as difficult as our task is, we libertarians must continue advocating health care liberty and a totally free health care system. We must not settle for coming up with proposals that simply reform this deadly and destructive system. Our lives and everybody else's depend on it. I'd like to get your reaction. 801-331-8113. I mean, look, this is, for, for some people, this would even invoke cries of, why, you're nothing but an anarchist. But I don't think that's necessarily true. And I'm going to point out, Jacob Hornberger is actually, uh, he's vying for the Libertarian Party's nomination for president. So it's not like he's saying, hey, man, forget the government, just every man for himself, bro. It's the law of the jungle. Obviously, he believes that there is a proper, limited role for government. But how do you get there when people are so used to government being a part of every decision that they make, everything they do? Of course, you add a little bit of fear into the mix. In fact, you dump in a metric ton of fear and stir it in. Even people who ostensibly just a few weeks ago said, no, no, I'm a freedom-loving conservative, are clamoring for someone, anyone, to make them feel safe. And they've been trained and conditioned the place you look for safety and the place you look for someone to reassure you that they are in charge and someone is being responsible is you turn to government. So I know this probably gets lost in the translation every so often. And so I just want to clarify for those who may be wondering, you know, Brian, are you saying we should have no government whatsoever? That's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I'll go so far as to say I believe properly limited government which exists for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing your God-given rights and my God-given rights, it's a huge blessing to have such a thing. But when I say properly limited, I mean it would need to get out of about 80% of the areas of our lives where it's currently involved. And I think the, the biggest question that hangs over our heads right now isn't, the question of are we all going to get sick and die from COVID-19? Some people are going to get sick and die from it. Some people have. But the bigger question that hangs over our heads is how far will those in authority take this grab for power and control in the name of protecting us? And will they ever relinquish that power once this crisis has passed? See, they're having a very successful time right now in defining as enemies of the state anyone who questions their narrative, anyone who doubts what we are being told, anyone who refuses to pile on and, and you know, wave the fear flag a little bit harder than their neighbor. I mean, I don't I don't want to. I don't want to engage in hyperbole, but I think we are probably closer to the greatest wholesale loss of freedom in this nation's history than we have ever been before in any of our lifetimes. And we've been through some pretty rough stuff in the 240-year history of this country. 
So we'll talk about some solutions just the other side of our commercial break. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to join the conversation. All right, I got a little good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The plane is being hijacked. The good news is our hijackers want to go to Disneyland. All right. Actually, uh, the bad news is, you remember Cash for Clunkers? Oh, come on. You remember what happened back in 2008? Yes, Cash for Clunkers. The government sent people money so they could get out there and Stimulate the new car market. And, you know, in return, what you had to do was you had to surrender your older car, whatever shape it was in, and the government would give you money for that older car, which you could then go put towards a new car. Now, of course, the old cars could not be allowed to stay out there on the market, so they dumped stuff into the engine while it was running, froze up the engines, and basically scrapped them all. It was it was really a smart thing. And pretty soon, everybody was driving new cars, and the auto industry was back on its feet, and... Okay, maybe maybe that's what was intended. But the unintended consequence was, for those of us who were not in the market for new cars, the used car market got very, very tight. So why was that a big deal? Well, okay, I'll tell you from, from my standpoint, it's because that's about the time my wife and I added our sixth child to the family. Now, don't judge. We're just doing our part to overpopulate the world. But um, the the point is, we tried and we succeeded for some time fitting all five of our kids, plus ourselves, into a great big crew cab F-350 turbo diesel pickup, which was a wonderful thing to have. I can't tell you. Of all the vehicles that I have had in my lifetime, that is the one I probably miss the most just because of the sheer utility of such a vehicle. But the fact is we outgrew it. And we added one more kid. One of my favorite kids, by the way. Don't tell her siblings that, but I love that girl. And that meant we had to find something else. Like a Suburban. But when it came time to go looking for a Suburban, holy cow. Suddenly all the used SUVs, all of the family-sized vehicles, even minivans were getting tough to come by because the used market was unnecessarily, it was artificially tight because of cash for clunkers. And this also affected the parts market, too, for you do-it-yourself, as you probably remember this, too. It took a lot of, of great, otherwise functional, used cars off the market, which would have been great for people who were you know under that certain price point, which I most certainly was, and made it just dang near impossible to find a good, affordable car. Now, we got lucky. We were able to find a Suburban. We drove the crud out of it. Actually had to replace the engine at one point. um, And it served us well for a long time. But it was so difficult to find a good used vehicle because of this government intervention in the name of let's stimulate the auto economy. So I'm telling you this because now I am seeing Cash for Clunkers overseer is backing a pitch for a sequel. And Ford, I'm ashamed of you. Ford Motor Company has an executive who's saying, well, maybe uh, maybe it's time that we uh, rehash cash for clunkers. 
we didn't learn the first time around? Well, the auto industry needs a jolt. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Don't we all? But tell me about all these recently unemployed people. What, we're up to like 10 million in the last couple of weeks. How exactly are they going to pay for these new cars? Well, the government checks, really. I don't know. I've heard about uh, I've heard about the East German. What was the car? The Trabant. <laughs> the only good thing about it was it had a warmer in the trunk lid, so when you were pushing it because it was often broken down, you could uh, keep your hands warm. This sounds like a really, really bad idea. And so I'm I'm sharing this with you not to rain on anybody's parade. I love a new car. I love to be able to drive a new car. Uh, I feel like it's an experience that has happened too few times in my life. But uh, I, I love seeing new vehicles out there. I'm happy for the people driving them. But that's got to come about because the market is ready for that. Because the market conditions are right. And that's where people are willing to allocate their limited resources. This is not the time. To throw in a little bit more, you know, whatever, however many hundreds of billions of dollars worth of stimulus this would require for the sake of bailing out the car industry. I told you yesterday about uh, some of the stuff that uh, uh, actually I I shared in the the last hour as well. Some of the information that a friend sent me regarding our economic uh, prospects for the next few months or years. It's a serious problem. I think the words painful truth may have come up in our conversation. And we're all facing how to deal with that. And it's going to be different for all of us. But I guarantee you, nobody's going to get away scot-free. Nobody's going to get away without feeling some of the pain. So as much as, you know, government wants to help, we just want to help you. This is one of those times where we need to be clear that uh, this, we don't need this kind of help. Cash for Clunkers 2, the Corona Boogaloo. Here it comes. Better learn to just say no. All right, some good news. Here's the good news. Gratitude is a booster shot for your loved ones. Now, why would we talk about gratitude when everything is falling apart like a soup sandwich, right? Well, think about this. This is an article on intellectualtakeout.org from Jennifer Chevens and David Craig both of whom acknowledge the world is currently in the midst of a pandemic where the most useful thing many of us can do is stay at home and keep away from others. Schools, restaurants, office buildings, movie theaters are all closed. Many people are feeling disoriented, disconnected, and scared. At this time of soaring infection rates, shortages of medical supplies, and economic downturns, there are also examples of people looking for ways to express their gratitude. And that can be to those on the front lines of fighting the epidemic. For instance, in many European countries, people are expressing gratitude for the work of medical staff by clapping from their balconies. Recently, this practice has migrated to New York City. I noticed just yesterday my, uh, my little girl's teachers from her grade school came driving through our neighborhood. They had a little parade of cars come through. And the neighbor kids were all out waving and clapping and cheering on their teachers. Well, the authors of this article say, as psychology researchers, they have been working to study the connection between gratitude and well-being. And this is what they wanted to share with us. In 2013, psychologists Robert Emons and Robert Stern explained gratitude as both appreciating the good things in life, as well as recognizing that they come from someone else. So there's a strong correlation between gratitude and well-being. 
Researchers have found that individuals who report feeling and expressing gratitude more report a greater level of positive emotions like happiness, optimism, and joy. And at the same time, they have a lower level of negative emotions like anger, distress, depression, and shame. They also report a higher level of life satisfaction. Furthermore, they say grateful individuals report a greater sense of purpose in life, more forgiveness, better quality of relationships, while they even seem to sleep better. In short, grateful individuals seem to have more of the ingredients that we need to thrive and flourish. And there are several possible explanations for the apparent connection between gratitude and well-being. It could be that our gratitude serves as a positive lens through which to view the world. For example, grateful individuals could be inclined to see the good in people and situations, which may result in a more compassionate, less critical view of others and themselves. And they may also be more naturally prone to forming mutually supportive relationships. When someone expresses gratitude, the recipient is more likely to connect with that person and to invest in that relationship in the future. So they have a couple of suggestions, and unfortunately we're not going to be able to get through the whole article, but I will have it posted in the show notes. Gratitude exercises do have weak effects. That's the one caveat that came with this research. It shows that gratitude is correlated with well-being, but it doesn't prove that simply expressing gratitude improves well-being. But one thing that I think you and I could put to work and that comes in extremely handy is they did find that we can express gratitude to help others. And this is where I believe most of us are going to find our greatest amount of peace right now. Turning our thoughts outside of ourselves, away from how nervous and uncertain I feel about the future, and strive, what can I do to lift the people around me? The authors say, we're not suggesting that expressing gratitude has no value, but they are arguing that gratitude shouldn't be thought of so much as a self-help tool to increase your own happiness and well-being. Instead, it's a wonderful way to honor and acknowledge someone else. Indeed, researchers have found that expressions of gratitude lead to improved relationships for both the person who expresses gratitude as well as the recipient. The lead researcher of a 2010 study, psychologist Sarah Algo, concluded that for romantic relationships, gratitude worked like a booster shot. So the point here is during this global pandemic, perhaps it is more important than ever to express gratitude to the important people in our lives. And that's not just our loved ones. But the countless public officials, healthcare professionals, others fighting, fighting on the front lines, I would expand that to your neighbors. The people you may pass on the street or wave to as they're walking to the mailbox, show them some gratitude and see, see what happens. Have yourself a great and safe weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. Stand by for the Kate Daly Show coming up next. <laughs> 